This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, let's start our show. I'm Matt Ryan. Welcome to Script to Screen, uh, The Big Short. The movie was nominated for five Oscars. Best Picture, Director, Editor, Supporting Actor, Christian Bale, and Best Adapted Screenplay. So, uh, so to talk about this unconventional screenplay, we'd like to welcome Charles Randolph, the Oscar-winning screenwriter from The Big Short. Hello, Charles. Hello, hello. Hi. Uh, all right, so the movie's based on the book, uh, The Big Short by Michael Lewis. The book goes into great detail about mortgage bonds, subprime loans, and default credit swaps. Um, not exactly <laughs> something that I would initially say should be turned visually easily into a movie. So how did you like approach structuring the screenplay at the beginning that we're going to try to turn these concepts into a visual story? Well, um, part, part of it was doing a broad enough palette of characters so that when you went into sort of more abstract stuff, you were okay with it because you didn't feel like you were missing out on one particular person's story. It's a little bit of this interesting structural principle that if you're following one person or one group of people, you're much more invested in minutia. Once you kind of feel like, oh, this is an ensemble thing, you can let go a little bit. So part of that helped, I think, candidly. Uh, and then it was really about first and foremost trying to find ways inside the narrative to explain a lot of these ideas. Uh, like the Jenga game, you know, that, that they play uh, where to explain, explain how a mortgage bond works and how once you sort of take elements out of the mortgage bond at a certain point collapse. And then, of course, you know, when that didn't do the trick, you know, obviously all the meta stuff, most of which all, you know, came from Adam and, and, and his very, you know, uh, you know, some really personal obsessions uh, uh, like Anthony Bourdain or, you know, that sort of thing. So, so, so it was really just sort of making it all work, you know, by whatever means possible, you know, even if it was just like stopping the movie and talking to, okay, guys, let's, let's, you know, let, <laughs> this is complicated. Let me explain again, you know? Um, and I think, you know, because, because Adam, I come from academia, you know, so, so, and I love Michael Lewis's ability to explain complicated things, which he does extremely well. And of course, Adam coming out of comedy, particularly the Dale Close improv tradition, he was, you know, he he's very used to like feeling where the audience is, you know, and like knowing exactly, no, we're going to lose him at this moment. So in a weird way, it was a, it was it was a it was a, it was a good marriage in, in the sense that um, he has a golden gut for just that when it's just a touch too complicated and he needs a little device to to know, okay, this this has got to this has got to be a little bit unusual in how we approach it, yeah. I guess one of the first steps, I mean, the book is a great resource and it does explain stuff. Did you do other research to try to figure out all this kind of stuff? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I talked to a lot of people uh, in, in, in Manhattan, in the business. Uh, and, you know, didn't have to do that much. Probably did more than I had to simply because Michael had done such a brilliant job of, 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 of getting people um, on the record. Michael, Mike, what's unusual about Michael's work for a nonfiction writer is he takes his subjects at their word. He never judges them, never even, you know, never even frames a judgment of them. He really basically lets them present their interest and what they think is, 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 is who they are. And, and what that does, it means 
because we all think of ourselves in terms of our desires, it means they usually have a very good constituent want, which is not always true in nonfiction, right? And so they have, they always have these strong wants, and then he lets them complicate it with their own lives and their own, and that's a rare gift to sort of step back and just let them, let them either hang themselves or not, but, but to let them tell their story and, and to embrace their perspective. Whereas the thing that's take a lot of journalists want is they want to telegraph to the reader their own judgments of this person, you know, particularly if they're a little sketchy in some way. And that was really important here because this is a story of a bunch of people who run hedge funds who essentially, you know, hate greed. And, and that's an unusual thing. And it's easy to, and it impa- that hatred and greed empowered them. So it's easy to be skeptical of it. And, and, and Michael just let them live in their own, in, in their own worldview and their own desires and let their contradictions emerge naturally. So in researching, did you have a lot of moments where you said, did this actually happen or could this actually be a thing? I think we all did, right? I mean, it was just so freaking nuts at the time. Just the just the just the amount of money that was involved. I mean, there's a moment where anyone who researches this realizes that there's this much money out there in in mortgages, and there's that much money out there betting on mortgages. Where you just you just can't get your head around the numbers. They they're just insane, right? And how the system had allowed that to happen. So there were yeah, the, 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 some of the underlying economics were just crazy. But also some of the people, I talked to one person who um, is not represented in the film, but he's the boss of someone who is. And I would quiz him a little bit about how mortgage bonds work. And it became clear that I knew more after reading Michael Lewis's book than he did about some certain structural elements. And that sort of scared me because what happens in these on these trading floors, it's just about the game. It's just about the trade in front of you. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, 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 it's amazing how, how that bubble created a world where, you know, people could be comfortably, tra- comfortable trading all this money and not really understanding both the implications of those trades and what they meant for the broader society. No, I mean, you obviously have a lot of real life people from the book. Uh, Did you rely mostly on the book or did you get to work with some of the real life people or talk to them? Uh, Yeah, mostly on the book. Um, Adam had them all come, you know, which uh, I think was largely good. Steve Eisman had strong opinions about about what was going on on set sometimes, which I think was kind of funny and precisely what I think Carell was probably delighted, you know, to have the real guy there doing exactly what Carell was doing on screen, like about what's going on on screen. You know, it's a funny meta thing, Um, but they all, they all weighed in and, and it was, it was really helpful. I mean, um, one of the, my, my favorite things is, um, Brian Gosling's character, the guy who uh, who who that's based on, showed up, and and he complains early in the shoot. It was in New Orleans. I wasn't there, but the story is, he he's watching Ryan come in and hand out um, hotel key cards, and he's like, I'm I'm not going to have hotel key cards. I would never do that. I would have an assistant. So so Adam goes out and he has pulls out of extras holding, pulls out some kid to like be the assistant. Right. And the kid's just terrified. Suddenly he's like on, on in the middle of this thing with all these famous actors and his hands are shaking his hands. Up. And Ryan just goes with it and just starts abusing the hell out of this guy. He's like, what the are you doing? Like, you know, and and suddenly it's a thing. And this kid goes from being an extra to being cast in the movie as Ryan's assistant. And the better part is 40 minutes. Right. Suddenly he's in every scene that Ryan does. They bring him to New York, to L.A., wherever they go. This guy's coming along because Ryan needs his assistant. So. 
So, so that's what's so great about that approach to filmmaking when those guys come from comedy is you can do those sorts of things. And, and because those guys had very, the people the book is based on had definite opinions, they really affected how, how the, the portrayals, uh, you know, and some of the dialogue. Gosling is a, is a secret writer, I think. I think he sort of works on his improv lines by himself in his trailer sometimes. And, uh, and you know, I think part of being experienced, being exposed to his character gave him a lot of verbiage, you know, things like and all this stuff that he just, he could kind of take from, the, take from his interaction, not necessarily thing the guy, things the guy would say, but, but interaction that he could feel, you know, in, in terms of the character. Yeah, so. so you mentioned um, a little about working, co-writing with Adam McKay, who has a background in comedy. Uh, Anchorman, for example. Uh, yeah. When you were early process script, how early did you guys decide you were going to take some, uh, have multiple protagonists talk to the audience directly? You even call yourselves out as screenwriters on a few occasions. Like, you yeah, know, right. It never happened. How often did you guys decide that you're going to need to do this kind of format to tell your story? That was more Adam. So we didn't work together. We didn't, you know, I gave him some comments on his draft, but we never sat down together. So I wrote my thing. You know, obviously the the multiple storylines, all that's there. There were a couple meta moments, but not near as many. Um, and, you know, the, I don't think there was any, I'm trying to think if there's any two camera address. I don't think there was any two camera address. So it's sort of steamrolled, right? What happens is he comes on board, he does his draft. He already has some fun ideas. I think initially it was going to be commercials, like commercials for, um, I can't remember. It's been a few years, but I believe what he wanted to do was have commercials for these complicated financial products that would play on screens. And then that got thrown out and it sort of became this thing of, of more direct two camera address. And it just got more and more and more. And I think, I think at a certain point, you know, I had had Burry doing the voiceover and then he of course had ended up having Gosling's character do it. And, and, and that changed things because what, what ended up happening is the film becomes a character in the movie, right? So what it's going to say is the voice of the film, the style of the film becomes a character itself. Now that character is attached to Ryan's guy, but you don't really think about that very much. You just sort of go with, oh, this is the voice of the film at a certain point. And once that happened, it really was freeing. And, and what's unique about the film is that the film is, is, is truly, you know, its style becomes a character. And, and that, was, that was shockingly empowering and exciting. And, 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 and that, a lot of that's just, just made up from, uh, from Adam. And, and I must say, you know, there's kind of a third writer in the process, which is the editor, Hank Corwin. Hank Corwin is a genius. And, you know, uh, a lot of that stuff he would find and, and he would build things. And, you know, he, you know, a lot of the montage stuff, uh, which was not in, ever written in any script. Suddenly he's, you know, he's, he's just sitting there in his house, web surfing, you know, 19, whatever, 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 2008, whatever, you know, popular culture was available. And he's just sort of building from that montage. So, yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of people say the movie's amazing editing, but this seems like a film where he had a lot of challenges to try to, you know, tell this story. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, you see, he's so smart. I mean, one of the things he does, which I love, is he kind of clips out words coming out of scenes. I don't know if you noticed that. Like, mm -hmm. he'll be like a, a word or, you know, a syllable won't get pronounced. And it, dis it dislocates you, and it creates this feeling of, oh, crap. What? And you go into the next scene, like, wait, what's going on? Like, it's always, you're always a little dislocated. And it, and it was a nice device for a world where everyone's trying to figure out what the hell is going on. I mean, how bad is this going to get? Uh, and so uh, there are little things like that that that, that uh, Adam and, and Hank did that are that are just terrific. Also, you know, one of the difficult things for screenwriters is exposition. So, like having Margot Robbie in a bubble bath 
lecture us about, you know. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And, then, and then telling us to F off was kind of a good way to get bridge some of the exposition issues. Yeah, yeah. That was an interesting one because it evolved. Uh, it evolved over time, and, you know, and, and, and uh, the original play was a little bit more sexist and, you know, and, and overtly a, a parody of sexism. And then, it, you know, and so, you know, her developing a little attitude really helped sell that. I think there was always a concern. This is going to feel creepy. And so her attitude, she brought a lot to it. I mean, I adore Margot, obviously. Uh, I wouldn't keep working with her all the time. But, but um, you know, she really brought to it that this this attitude, which just was very helpful. I mean, just this. This I'm going to play this game for you, but don't take this too seriously. This is not real. This is you know I'm not in the bubble bath. You know right? You know uh, so so yeah that that helped. Now you open with Ryan Gosling, Jared Bennett. He breaks the fourth wall, tells a story how boring '70s bankers got wealthy, went to strip clubs, and destroyed the U.S. economy. Yeah. Yeah. I love your line about how the audience repeats what sound bites what we think happened, just so we don't sound stupid in uh, right. parties. Uh, why why would you why did you want to open with Jared? You know, you had multiple protagonists. Yeah, no, so I didn't originally, you know, what ended up happening is in the, the, when people read the script, there were some just fundamental issues with what the hell's a mortgage bond? Like what is, what is a mortgage bond? Cause we didn't really explain it till you got to, again, the the Jenga game and, 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 and Jared talking about the deal. So, um, Adam sat down and said, okay, I'll do a little history of, Lou Ranieri and the mortgage fund. That stuff is in the book, but we had not used it previously. And so it really was just, you know, you know, a necessity being the mother of invention. We needed a funny sequence to really get you located as to what exactly this product was. And it was also an opportunity to humanize those guys. I think a lot of, for a lot of us, you think of like these hedge fund guys or Goldman Sachs bankers, they just they, they, they become such meritocrats, you know, and there's a time when they weren't that. There was a time when they were just guys from New York City, you know, who, you know, who were, who were basically insurance salesmen who had this crazy idea of gaming their, their market. And I think that was important for getting us to like them more. Um, and so that really, that really was one, you know, that's a late, probably almost second to last draft kind of thing you know and the reality is we would have lost the audience if you if we just if you went for the stereotype of all the mortgage bonds people are evil the bankers are evil we wouldn't have cared yeah absolutely and it's also why tell the story right that's that's something we know already what's remarkable is there's these guys who have a real conscience and they've made the that conscience has given them again the trade of their lives but they don't necessarily want to cash in because it means they are like everyone else and that's a that's just a fascinating conflict i mean i i'm always driven by uh internal conflicts not external conflicts right i think the great mistake people make is they go around looking for stories that have interesting external conflicts like the complicated ride to the airport you know then the tax i missed my taxi and then i got there you know and, you know, and that's just not interesting. What's interesting is an, a strong internal conflict. You know, a, a guy ri- riding through the desert hungry is not a story. But if that guy is riding the desert hungry and he has no money and he sees a wagon train coming towards him, right, and he's got a gun but no, no money, but he's got a priest collar and they're Mormons, you know, it starts to get interesting because we, we go from being, looking down on the characters, looking out through their eyes because we're very much engaged in, in, in that internal stuff. So I always start with an internal conflict. And, and Eisman had a perfect one, which is, you know, he, 
you know, he had this heartbreaking story in his past. It's not about his brother, right? I don't know if you know this from the book, right? It's about his child, which is a much more heartrending thing that, you know, basically his child dies when a, when a, when a nanny rolls over on uh, a new nanny who, who they just hired rolls over the child. And, and he felt such guilt about that and about his own drive. And so that really changed his life. And, you know, that's a fascinating internal conflict. You know, I, 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 I'm a banker, but I, I, I don't like the greed that motivates banking and finance. And, and so I always, that's what I'm looking for first and foremost. Why I like in Bombshell, you know, the rogue feminists, you know, who are conservative anchors, right? Because it's automatically a, is a great contradiction there. So that's the main thing, looking for that first and foremost, always. Yeah, well, well, we'll jump to Steve Carell's character, Mark. You made him change into Mark Bomb. He is uh, rude, obnoxious. He hijacks. Yeah. I love the scene where he hijacks the support group meeting, which is in the book. Right. Uh, right. In the book, all from the book. Yeah, he's also a crusader in the moral, a lot of the moral compass. Uh, and I like the reference when he was a child, he would study Judaism to find the flaws. Yeah. Also in the book, yes, <laughs> yes, also in the book. Uh, but how did you, Adam and Steve, want to make him approach his character to make him forcible, tough, but also likable and relatable? Yeah, um, well, I, mean, I think everyone brought something different, right? The, my original uh, Baum was caustic uh, and, and wounded, but more defensive. I think Adam, what Adam wanted to capture was a little bit more of the fact that he, you know, he, he's depressed. He has a sadness to him. There's this, this, he's just really driven by this, by this, this heartbreak. Um, and part of that's complicated because, you know, uh, we weren't sure if we could use the original real story of the child. We ended up not being able to. That was part of the deal that that the that that Michael Lewis had made with the real person that we would not tell that story as in the book. We would do it. Uh, we'd change it so it became the story of the brother, which is not quite the same thing. It's a little bit of a different thing. So I think part of it was just to get that get that sense of uh, of depression because the the story itself was kind of gave us that all that. And then Corral just had this lovely. Um, uh, ADD quality he wanted to bring to like this distracted like he just he's just this untutored rage that just has to constantly be moving forward and looking for the next thing to yell at you know and um and that, that really worked because it just it, it again it's it's this emotional in, intensity that that great actors can give you you know this sloppy you know humanity that they bring to to good roles uh and that and, and so it, you know it sort of evolved over time to to, to being that guy um, but I think a lot of it is Steve and, and, and Steve's need for just, you know, just this guy, just he's looking for a target. He's always looking for a target. Uh, well, Michael Barry is slightly different, plays like Christian Bale. Uh, he's very socially awkward, oversharing for yeah. his life, goes barefoot the work type of guy, social, definitely social anxiety issues. Yeah. Uh, but he's good at seeing numbers. How did you approach adapting his real life character? Well, a lot of all that's in the, everything you've mentioned is in the book, right? So that he kind of wrote himself. Um, uh, Asperger's characters in general, right? I suppose I should say people who, you know, are, are diagnosed as being on the spectrum, um, you know, are fun to write, you know, they, <laughs> because they, because there's an obsessiveness to it. Um, and, and so all that was there. Um, Adam, maybe in combination with, with Christian added the drumming. That was that was, I think, something that maybe Christian really wanted to do, uh, and because of the physicality of it, um, and and also there's just this notion of he's expressing himself, but he's got headphones on, so he's not 
really experiencing the, the thing that, everyone, that we're experiencing because for him, it's slightly different. Um, and so, so yeah, so that, that really was one of sort of sticking to what was there and unpacking a little bit of this, of this dynamic of, you know, the kid, the guy who just has never been given a chance to truly do what he thinks, like to truly trade the way he thinks. And he's finally going to take this. He's sure he's absolutely, absolutely sure he's right. He's actually read the numbers in a way that nobody else has, and he's going to follow through. And like anyone who, you know, who late in life goes on a quest, you want to, you want to surround that quest with a certain amount, not of self-questioning, but of a kind of goofy defiance, right? So it's not born out of rebellion. It's not born out of, uh, it's more like, I'm just sure I'm right. But, but there's always overt questioning going with it. So the, the, the quality that was important there was, you know, he's driven, He's sure, but he's also quite like, am I right? Yeah, I'm right, I'm right, right, I'm right. You know, like that kind of quality. And that, and again, it's a strong internal conflict that gave the actor something to play. I really like the scene when, the, when he first goes to Goldman Sachs saying, I want to bet against, you know, the yeah. company. And they were mocking him. They were just right. him because of, you know, they could tell he had these yeah. issues. But he was so strong and steadfast. It was a nice little yeah. dynamic where he was actually in power there and he was just being dismissed. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think it's the very first scene I wrote. Um, because I think it, if it wasn't the first thing, my, my first draft, it was one of the first two. And it was just, it was just something about very satisfying about Goldman Sachs and everything it signifies in terms of just always beating the markets, always smarter than the rest of us because they have some access to information that the rest of us just don't have, you know? And that he walks in and he beats the tricksters at their own game just right away. And he's doing it from a sincere perspective. He's like, he's, he, he, what I love about that scene is he's being absolutely honest. He's not lying to them. He's not playing them. He's just like, you're wrong. And I, I want a product that lets me bet on you being wrong because I want to take your, you know, I want to take, you know, the situation and, 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 and correct it. You know, and I, and I like how they come back at him with, no, nah, we're going to take your money. This is, <laughs> this is what we do. He's like, I know that I'm ready. And so there was just a level of honesty in that scene that I really, that really I responded to. And it felt, it felt again, real to that world and, and, and how that world works. Yeah. It was actually a nice contrast to Mark Baum's character. Yeah. yeah because he doesn't have that aggressive. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to show anybody up. Like he doesn't, you know, he just like, I just need money for my people. Yeah. Uh, so I did like your Jenga scene. You mentioned it before. Uh, it was a great way of showing the impending doom, but you also have to balance like, you know, Mark Baum's um, distrust. Obviously yeah. Mark's going to distrust him. So how did you approach that scene? Because you had to have Mark be convinced that Jared is just not, you know, another sleazebag trying to rip him off. Yeah, it all, I think it all relies on us understanding how badly we're screwed. You know, if, if this presentation is correct. And I think what, what was important was holding back an articulation of the problem the film is going to address, which is that the economy is going to tank, right? Unless this mortgage problem gets corrected. And if we hold that back and you understand it then, and because we've all gone through it at this point, when we're watching it, we're like, yeah, oh yeah. And that really frees us up to, to, to be totally on board with, with, with Mark Baum because Mark Baum is, realizing something that we realize and it's sort of a i think it's sort of an important little trick in screenwriting is you know is always being able to to give character insights that we possess you know 
in a way that uses them, right? I mean, I think what we sometimes do, and if we're not paying attention to screenwriters, we well, the audience knows that, so I can just, you know, I can just, you know, just have my character character realize it and we move forward. But that's always an opportunity because there's something deeply satisfying for audiences about a character catching up with us. The moment that happens, it's just weirdly emotional. It's a bonding thing that we go through with characters, and when that character's oh. They get what we get. All right, this is going to get exciting because we're all on the same page now. Yeah, I actually did like Mark because you would think there was one of his uh, his supporters called out Mark. Why would you like this guy? Like, why don't you hate this guy? And he's like, Jared's being honest. Like, yeah. I actually, I almost respect him for being direct and honest. Not, <laughs> yeah, I love, you know, I love not, that part of it too. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's trying to screw it. Yeah, he's like, he want, he'll screw us absolutely. But he's not, he'll but he'll tell me that to my face, and you know, which uh, is why that yeah. line's great. Like, uh, how are you going to f us? Yeah. Like, yeah. oh yeah, this yeah. is what I'm doing. And I'm making yeah. money too. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, I gotta say props out to your I didn't the assistant thing is funny because I didn't hear that story before how he he berates us Ryan Gosling berates that assistant the whole entire movie. The entire time. The entire yeah. time. And I don't think any of that's ever scripted. I I mean I, there was a there was the the quant was in the room originally, obviously, you know. Uh, the quant who who he yeah. pretends is China, you know a native uh, Mandarin speaking Chinese uh, as opposed to a Chinese American, uh, but um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> yeah that that was yeah fantastic. I did like how you would have him Ryan make such a terribly racist statement, get called out by the almost immediately for it. That was a nice yeah. trick <laughs> to play with. Yeah, yeah. I was all right. So the Florida scene that was that was actually to me one of the most impactful moments for me because we have the comedy where Steve meets yeah. Stripper. And she finds out those five houses, uh, the sleazy mortgage brokers, like we're meeting all these people. But then we see that poor guy with his daughter when he learns that his, yeah. you know, his, uh, you know, his landlord dog actually was on the right. lease and he's about to get evicted. How important for you is to kind of mix up the comedy, but actually show the human cost in that kind of uh, Very important. And, you know, that scene's not in the book. Right. That, 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 that's a sequence that was wholly created from other sources. Um, and it's there precisely to achieve that, to like go into the world and see the cost of this scandal on real people. Um, and, you know, I will always love Adam McKay because he didn't touch it. You know, he, he just he just shot it, you know, and 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 it really makes a difference, I think, for the film, because so many of the. Um, so many of the narratives of that time just didn't do that, just didn't go into the, into the streets. And, you know, that, that woman who uh, there is a, a, there was a stripper, I think she was in Tampa who had, who had precisely that real estate portfolio or whatever it is, four houses and a condo. I can't remember what it was, but, you know, um, and, and, and had, you know, was deeply underwater. Uh, And, you know, it was just, it was just a, it was just one of those things where you're trying to figure out, okay, how can we, how can we show this other side? And there was no reason for it until we sort of created this thing of, oh, they don't believe Jared totally. They need to know. So they're going to go down to Florida and we're going to experience their discovery of it being. And then, then the, the, the line out of it will be, there's a bubble. Let's go. And that's your kickoff, you know, into the, to the, to the, to the back half of the movie. Well, and the reality is the audience, like we are doubting Jared. Like there's yeah. no way we need this. We need to be proven too, because it's yeah. almost like yeah. some ways you're speaking. Let Mark speak for the audience, because we are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I want to say I want to give a shout out to Adam here on something he did. He did that I thought was pretty powerful. He cast a uh, an an actor as that you know as that Hispanic man who opens the door, who's paid his mortgage but his landlord hasn't, 
and I don't know where he got that guy, but man, that guy was fantastic. Just in the, in the brief few seconds he's on screen, both there and then later in the film, you really feel his authenticity. He really feels like that guy who came up kind of rough, got a good job, has now found his way in life, you know, and got a good family. And yet he's going to get screwed by the system in a way he doesn't deserve to get screwed by the system. And it would never have occurred to me to cast that particular guy but it really works for the film. And it's, and it's one of those moments, those magical moments in casting where a good actor can communicate a whole backstory just by who they are and how they move and how they talk. And, and it really worked, I thought. Oh, it was so crushing with him and his daughter living in the car. Yeah. The movie. I mean, yeah. That, and yet believable, right? It's like it to is. have that moment later, you need to believe that, that, you know, and there are a lot of couples, be like, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't believe that guy's actually going to live in his car. He's going off somewhere, living with some relative somewhere. But, but that guy, you felt the dislocation. Maybe he's immigrant, an immigrant. Maybe his parents were immigrants. I mean, you could just, you could kind of feel like maybe there's a reason why, you know, uh, uh, because you know, of the tats and all that, there's a reason why he's dislocated from a community. Therefore, his car is the only shelter he's going to have. Yeah. Now we have the other team: Jamie Shipley, Charlie Geller, and Ben Rickard, played yeah. by Brad Pitt. Uh, they're you know Shipley and Geller are not yet corrupted, but I'm seeing scenes that they could be corrupted. Yeah. Uh, what did what did this team bring to your story? What did you want to show with these three? Uh, we we you know I wanted some people who were um, outside the system and looking in and who just desperately wanted to be part of the game, getting that, um, that document, which allows, allows them to make the kinds of trades that the big banks uh, did that, that I wanted that story because I wanted to show how this was something that you just, you, not everyone could do. Right. And, and it was, it, it really makes a difference in terms of um, the fact that, there are people, there were people out there who were so hungry to get in the game that they would, you know, that, that, that the system would, would always find fresh money. In the book, you'll recall that Michael Lewis talks a lot about Dusseldorf and this sort of dumb European money that's throwing, throwing that's continuing to buy these products. We needed to show that, but we wanted to show that in a more sort of domestic way. So, so that was part, part of it, you know. Also, it was just you know, some younger blood, you know, some younger actors in it. I thought I found their story kind of moving, just because you know they they really did have a couple ideas that nobody else had in terms of oh, we don't have to short the B tranche out of the A tranche, we can short the B tranche, and that was a big that was a big thing. It's probably bigger in the real world than the movie even even suggests. Yeah. Now you begin to raise the stakes because Michael Berry's getting pressure from his bosses. Which yeah. I, you know, I would understand why his boss would be upset for $400 million yeah, yeah. invested. Uh, I like Steve Carell's character getting called out by the Bonds woman, you know, for, yep. for you know, yep. betting against the economy. How did you want to, like, bring this sequence and moving to the Vegas thing, kind of really showing yep. these two worlds are colliding? Just that. I mean, I, I, my favorite scene on the page, it's not my favorite scene in the, in the, in the movie, but it was on, was the... And it's a little obvious, you know, that she's the, you know, she's blind, like she's gone to the eye doctor, you know, she can't see. I mean, the metaphor is a little, you know, it's a little, a little screenwritery maybe. Um, but I always love that scene because it's that one time that someone calls Mark Baum, you know, on his own self-interest, right? He's going around saying, look, these, this can't work. And the first time someone says, yeah, you have a reason, you're short. Yeah, you, you have a reason for this. Like, so you can't, you can't. And, and Mark, you know, he, you know, he takes the moral high road. What's interesting about short sellers who are activists is they're often blind to their own financial self-interest. They get so caught up in their moral fervor. They actually think that, no, this is just a crusade for me because it's a crusade. 
but there's always an economic self-interest there. Whereas if they can, if they can change the nature of the, of the, of the world, then they will, they will benefit. And it was important, I think, to call out, you know, the activist investor uh, in a way that hadn't been called out quite in popular culture before. So, so, so that was what that one was about, you know, and then, for, you know, all, obviously in any screenwriting, you're interested in sort of creating stakes and escalating stakes and, and Burry's situation was fantastic because we didn't make up anything. That's exactly what happened. I mean, these guys showed up. They said, what the hell are you doing? You're a doctor. You're a stock picker. You know nothing about bonds. You've had this product created. You're putting every cent you have into this. This is nuts. This is insane. And everything that happens is exactly as it, as it, as it was in the book. Now, I, I did like the scene where Mark Baum uh, at Vegas calls out the keynote speaker. <laughs> yes also in the book yeah. In the yeah. book. yeah but as a screenwriter is that is that the type of thing where you're like you know is the audience going to buy this is you know yep. I mean, it is that <laughs> it's that i'm like i even writing it like this is never going to get shot you know because <laughs> there's no way that can be real uh it, you know but again, again Carell does a really good job of selling it right because uh he 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 has i mean by the way the, the picking up the phone and the walking out that's exactly as it is in the book like he literally got this call while he was in the middle of, I mean, he's, he's yelling at the guy in a public forum and then he gets a call and he's like, hold it. Like, you know, you know. Uh, and, but at that, by that time in the movie, we've, we've watched Baum be so disruptive and so crazy in, in certain social situations that we go, we kind of go with it. And Steve, you know, he underplays it beautifully. You know, it's, it, he, he makes sure that it's not about his own ego and it's not about enjoying the disruption. It's more about the real indignation that he's feeling you know, and once that sincerity is there and he's not playing to 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 the other people in the room, we we, we go with it. Yeah, we definitely go with it. I was getting curious. Steve Carell never addresses the camera. Yeah. Was yeah. that a conscious choice or maybe fear? Of the you know, no. And, and, and that would be more of an Adam question because so much of that stuff, you know, they did it, you know, kind of by the on the fly. Um, uh it, 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 and yes, I would say yes. The idea was that we would always retain that integrity because he was, you know, he was sort of much more of our guide in the scripts than he than he became in the final movie because he, you know, the, the entire thing began with him and with him. You know, it was he was he was probably a little bit more in it, um, you know, overall. Uh, and so, so, there, so it definitely was something about not touching Matt, letting him be a, be someone that we, we that we don't have access to his thoughts because it'll make him a little bit more interesting. But I think he just there was no reason ever for him to do that because it just, you know, uh, and also I, I guess I guess I would, it, you know, to thinking back um, and sorry, it's been a few years, but part of it's also, you know, he's going to have this big emotional scene with his wife about his dead brother. And I think it was just a little bit of not screwing with that, like letting the audience fully live with him always as a real human being in the world and not an actor playing a real human being, because that way, when we got to that moment, it was easier for us to buy and accept. The others don't have those big dramatic turns. And so we are, we're, we're more comfortable thinking about also them. Also Michael Barry and Christian Bale, like you want yeah. him to be a little more grounded and emotionally yeah. real. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So when you, when you first dream of being a screenwriter, did you ever envision a day where you would have a prominent economist and Selena Gomez explain <laughs> synthetic CDO via blackjack? <laughs> no, I did not. No, I did not. Uh, it's a great scene, though. I, you know, I mean, they're, they're both geniuses for different reasons. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, you know, the only the only downside of that is uh, and this was, by the way, Adam's idea. Um, 
the only downside of that is on, on the page, what happens is we just go outside of the casino and we have people betting on what's going on. And they go and you just keep pulling back and back and like, until you realize all of Las Vegas is betting on this one deal. And it was such a funny idea, but I, I think there was no way to shoot it. Certainly not at the number that we needed to shoot things. So uh, that was the only part of it to this day. When I see that, I'm like, oh, too bad. We didn't keep going back and back and back and back. But actually, it's interesting because, you know, I like blackjack, but it was, it did actually make it clear. This was a very difficult concept to understand. Yeah. And actually, it was kind of obvious. Oh, yeah. it makes sense now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we know that, that that's a long journey. I mean, originally, you tried to do it in the script, right? And it was a long one-page soliloquy that Mark Baum gives about the difference between um, – the amount of money that goes into baseball versus fantasy baseball, you know, and like, you know, and, and imagine a world where fantasy baseball becomes structured societies and fantasy baseball is the you know dominant part of the economy. And, you know, and yet you have no relationship to the thing itself. It's all people betting on people betting on people betting. And, and it just, it, 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 it took so long to kind of get the idea across and with, with, with just the two of them there, talking about it and the people doing it it just it was so quick you know and 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 really just a, just great filmmaking and now we obviously root for mark Baum towards the end of the movie he debates that bear stearns guy on stage which is yeah. great as you yeah. know got him to say he would buy stock even though it fell 30 yeah. percent in the middle of it he knows corrupt wall street is going to get bailed out by the taxpayers and he but you can see the pain reluctantly when he realizes that he's about to profit off this right at the end of the yeah. film yeah. so how did you approach his resolution because it is filled with a lot of emotional contradiction yeah so that was always i think was when i first talked to the producers i said the last line of this movie will be sell it sell it all and we're going to structure the entire film around his choice to complete a a a short to, to sell his short and, 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 and cash out and, you know, and with the biggest trade of his life or, or in almost any banker's life, you know, and then the whole thing will be about his struggle to get there. And we'll never quite know whether or not he's going to do it or not, if he's going to walk away. Um, you know, when, when, the, when we wrote the original draft, when I wrote the original draft, uh, the story wasn't quite as well known. So there, there was always a hope that the audience wouldn't know if he actually made money off of it or not. Um, by the time it got made, it was clear, you know, he, he had gotten enough press that it was clear. Most people knew that, he, you know, that there were that these guys were out there. I mean, the book was successful enough. It was clear that, you know, these, that these short sellers had done very, very well. But, yeah, that was always going to be the structure. And, you know, again, it's a great internal conflict. Like, that's what we care about is, you know, you got choice A, you got choice B. What is this person going to do? Um, you know, the, the, um, the, the thing at Bear Stearns is in the book. And, and it's, it's all there. Um, and, and, you know, um, yeah, that's kind of what happened is that as they were doing that, they all started getting these, these text messages telling them that the market was falling apart as they're talking about how the market's not going to fall apart. So, yeah, so it just, you just, you kind of can't believe it. And, and again, it was, you know, it was important that we had characters look at the camera and say, guys, this is what happened. This is insane, but this is what happened. Uh, now we also Michael Barry. I mean, we cheer for him because he did make four hundred eighty million dollars for his boss who sued him. So I guess we're happy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But there's also some pain because you can you mentioned like he wanted to tell in the title that he wanted to help go to the government say what happened. He got dismissed. How about his yeah. ending? How did you feel about you know how we can resolve his? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, um, there was always a bittersweet quality because you, know, you know Tracy Letts's character is is both his boss and not his boss. He's his boss in the sense that he controls, 
you know, he contractually can control some of the hedge fund, but he's, you know, he is, he is basically giving, uh, Burry money to invest. Right. So, so he has limited power. And, um, it is true that Burry kind of abused that trust a little bit. Um, and it's also true that Burry decided in the course of this trade that he just didn't, didn't hated how he was treated. And it's also true that the minute Burry completed this trade and made them all this money and then started getting doing other trades in the stock market, they all immediately started complaining again. I mean, right away. So the man makes half a billion dollars for his investors. And then, you know, a week later, he's making other trades. And they're emailing him again. Like, what are you doing? What are you, no, no. Like, you know, so, you know, it's, 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 it, it, you know, it, you know, he, Mike is now um, doing only a family office because he can afford to, I think it's mostly, I mean, he trades maybe for some other people, uh, friends, um, but he does a lot with like water in California and you know, a lot of environmental stuff that he, that he, that he trades. So, you know, um, I, you know, it's all in the book. It's all that, that was pretty, it was pretty much just telling it in as efficient a manner as possible. I mean, there's not, you know, we treat some of it like there's no, there's, I don't, you know, the, the, the board outside the office, you know, where he writes, you know, and the one assistant who stays late. I mean, all that's made up, but but you know, just the, the the dynamic he's in is is just what's there in the story. I did what like happened? Ryan Gosling's last line: "Banks are broken up, people went to jail, and new regulations in place." Just kidding. They blame immigrants and poor people. <laughs> uh, coming from our non-hero, he's kind of a non-hero. Of the story, the line was impactful. How did you want to use these lines to capture his neutral essence to his character? Yeah, the whole idea is that at this point he's the voice of the film and not the character, right? So that what's happened is by this point we ju- he's just talking for the filmmaking process basically, and us, and you know, and and it, it, it kind of works, you know. I mean, I have to say it, 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 you know, if you think about it, it gets a little bit. I'm not so sure, but yeah, it was, you know, it was, you know, I think the original original pitch for this for this movie was we're going to have as much fun as possible on our way to getting. And it was always going to end with, you know, this voiceover uh, of someone saying, you know, this is what happened in our, you know, in the year 2008, this happened and this happened and this happened. And, you know, it was, it was not good for us as a society. This was a bad thing, you know, and, and, you know, the idea here is that the subject becomes emotional and moral in a way that you've not, we've not had. You know, uh, and you kind of been waiting for it because Baum is that way. But then finally, the film itself, you know, does a little, you know, tut tutting. And um, you know, it's not it's a it's a it's a risky move, um, but one I'm I, I and Adam are very proud of because I think it worked. You know, and it, and 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 it spoke truth. And um, it's always hard when you do movies that are about politics. You know, but when you when you you know when you deem to get on a soapbox so overtly and so clearly it's even more dangerous but i think by the time the film came out people were angry enough about what had happened that that we found a lot of uh, we find a lot of appreciation for that perspective what was the reaction from the real people from the movie oh they were all really happy yeah they were all you know remember they had some of them had been around during filming and they sort of and they had, had seen their notes you know again because who adam is he would take their notes and and change it you know there's a there's a wonderful moment where gosling critiques the idea that he would never be in a disco with these losers. That's from the real guy, right? The real guy standing there going, Adam, I would never go. To, I, would ne- I would never talk to that girl. I would never, that music sucks. Look at them. They're, I would never be with these people. 
And so Adam just has Ryan turn to the camera and say, I wouldn't be here, <laughs> you know? And so because they had been so integrated in it the entire time, you know, it, it worked. Right. And so, um, you know, they were all, all pretty happy. I mean, there was a, you know, some of, some of the people who he beat up a little bit who were not happy. Um, Michael Lewis had a lawsuit. You'll recall with the, uh, the man in the, in the, in the um, I think it's a sushi place they're in in Vegas, you know, who's quite proud of his trade. Um, yeah, that guy, that guy and Michael have had a little, a little litigious history, I believe. Um, but, um, you know, uh, by and large, everyone who, who's betrayed was, uh, uh, was, was happy. Now, uh, we're about to open up the audience. I have one last question for that. So it was, as we mentioned, it was, you were nominated and won for Best Screenplay. But your competition was Brooklyn, Carol, The Martian, and Room. That was a very great year for writing. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, how it was, was the process of, like experiencing like the whole Oscar tour with with your fellow writers and kind of? It was great. It was absolutely great. You know, there's this thing that we do up in Santa Barbara where they bring up everybody together, and and that was I think the first thing we were all at together, and not just us. Also, obviously, the the originals guys were there too. And it was just, a, it was a great group that year. I mean, it was just, it was phenomenal and, and, and on both sides. And, and, and I still cherish those memories and, and, and Drew and all those people that we, that we got to hang out with were just, it was, it was fun. You know, it was, it was a delight because the film was shot pretty quick. It was edited, you know, um, it, I think over the course of the summer and then it kind of Paramount needed it and had a slot for it so they could put it in, 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 in around uh, you know, um, Christmas season had a very early screening at the W at the DGA in which uh, Michael Mann got up and sang its praises. And, and, and it just, it just, so it sort of, it was a delight that whole season. I mean, everywhere we went, people loved the movie. Um, the reviews weren't perfect, but the response of filmmaking people was, was great. And, and it was just, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was fun to hang out with all those guys. Christian's a lot of fun. I mean, you know, all those people were so much fun. It was just a delight compared to bombshell where the circuit was, you know, a little bit more tortured because, um, you know, it was, it was so overtly political in a way that people, you know, that pe some people didn't like, um, you know, uh, it was, it was a, a dream experience. It really was. And, and, and that thing that's so great about being, uh, uh, in those situations and why I would encourage anyone if they ever, you know, if they ever have a chance to participate in those, because they're, they're like political campaigns. They're long and, 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 and complicated, but, but um, it's just the time you spend with other writers. We never get to talk to other writers, you know, and we, we can, but it's hard. And just to be able to spend so much time with people whose craft you respect was, was fantastic. The best part of the process by far. All right. So we're going to bring uh, one of the student producers, our producers of Script the Screen, Sonia onto the screen. Hello, Sonia. And she's going to take some questions from the audience for you. Okay. Hi. Hi, Charles. Hi, You're coming. Hi. Great. Okay. First, um, we got a lot of questions about like your very early process with screenwriting and how you go about that. So Cameron Kwan asks specifically for when you're adapting a book and when the characters and plot are fairly developed already. Are you more focused on translating the story into like a visual medium or is it still a ground up process for you? No, he's, Cameron is absolutely right. It's the former. Uh, what, what you want to do in a book situation is get a list going of 40 to 50 scenes, you know, if not scenes, moments, if nothing else, you know, that you really love, that, that really capture that for you and just start at that place. So like just sit down, read the book, and then just as you read, just keep a list and then edit that list down to, again, 40, 50. 
have that and then think, okay, that's my film. How can I build this, this movie out of those great moments? Because what you don't get back is your initial response to the material, right? It, you know, it's, it's different when it's a story that comes out of your head or your experience, you kind of live with it in a different way. When it's someone else's, you, you know, you get initial exposure and that's gold. Right. So try not to be, you know, watching TV or you know, listening to music, try and immerse yourself for the first time in the material uh, in a way that 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 tracks that feeling. That's a little hard because you may not know you love it for a film while you're doing it. But if you if you start to smell, oh, this may be something. Stop, get a piece of paper and do that. Uh, so, yeah, you are looking for you're, you're looking for sort of more more fully baked scenes then and then go back and do the work of, of doing the plot and thinking through the characters in terms of, you know, the hardest part of nonfiction stuff is the characters because real people don't come with strong internal conflicts. Real people are just real people. And, and, and so you get, you know, you, you, you're going to have to cheat them and invent them. Uh, I caution people against meeting the real people early, trying not to do that if you can avoid it, because once they're on your shoulder and you're worried about, Oh, what will Megan Kelly think about this? What do I do? You know, it's, it, that becomes complicated. Interesting. Okay. We have a question from Luda Panina. She says, I love this film so much and I really appreciate the framing of the financial crisis, kind of talking down to the audience for not understanding the crisis, but also educating them. But unfortunately, rewatching this film in 2020 slash 21 makes the entire crisis seem almost quaint. Like yeah. I feel nostalgic watching this movie now because I miss a time when not everyone was aware of the dark underbelly of American society. And she asks, how would you approach writing a snappy, witty film like this post-COVID, post-Trump, when everyone is in on it? Wow. Um, I don't know that you could, right? I mean, I, I, think, the, I think, you know, in, in, when we wrote, when I, when, I, when I wrote my first draft, even when, when Adam shot the film, this was the biggest sort of collective crisis in recent memory. You know, I mean, in terms of just that we had all gone through and as a nation, you couldn't remember when it happened. It was like, oh, the biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression. You know, it was such a big deal. Now, you know, is it in the top five of the last 20 years? Maybe, <laughs> you know, just barely. Right. So so I don't know that I don't know that it would it would, you know, the same tone. You know, I try to do a similar kind of tone, obviously, with Me Too where we enjoyed the characters and we enjoyed some of their comedic interactions, which is my movie Bombshell. Um, but I have to say it, 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 it veers more into heaviness by necessity. And, I, you know, uh, it, it's hard. It's, it, it, it's, it, it is hard. I think a part of that's distance. Like if I were to do a movie about um, the recent storming of the Capitol, right, and those guys, you know, because those guys are both kind of goofy and dangerous at the same time. It's like a weird mix, right? I can imagine that being um, entertaining and terrifying 10 years from now in a way that I can't imagine it being two years from now. So part of it's distance, I think. Okay, well, you touched on Bombshell. So we have this question from an anonymous attendee. She says, or they say, I loved Bombshell and the complicated women in that script. Can you talk a little bit about managing the emotional journey of multiple characters and what it was like working with Charlize Theron? What <laughs> did she bring to the role that surprised you? Uh, well, let me take the last one first because it's that's pretty easy. Charlize is um, uh, very tough, right? She's a strong, tough person. She brought to Megan a little bit more of a um, a reserve, you know, a, a kind of thoughtful reserve. Which real Megan's not. Real Megan is 
no, she's from Albany. You know, she's, you can feel a little bit of, you know, of, of um, the, co- the college person in her. You know, you can feel a little bit like, like a little bit, she's a little bit impish um, and, and a little warmer uh, than, than, the, than, the, than the character on the screen was. But that work ended up re- working really well for us, that reserve, because, you know, the audience was not unambiguous, un, you know, they were pretty ambivalent about Megyn Kelly, right? On one hand, you know, we want to protect all women from that experience. On the other hand, Megan's a problematic pe- person for a lot of people. So that helped us a lot. It, you know, her, her own reserve really helped make the character work for a big portion of the audience that otherwise might not have gone with it. Um, but in general, in terms of, you know, uh, the thing that drives me crazy about, about um, the, the, some of the writing around female characters is, particularly in this moment, the need to back off from making them dark or making them complicated or messy or sloppy or whatever. You know, I mean, women deserve to have as, as many crazy, insane characters as men have always had, right? And I think we're in this weird moment particularly when you get into uh, uh, BIPOC women, right? There's this, this thing about, oh, we got to be a little, and, and, and that's not fair. I mean, you know, Viola Davis is a great actor. She can, she can do anything you throw at her. So throw it at her. Throw, her, throw everything at her. She deserves everything, right? So, so part of it's just us appreciating that the delicacy with which we handle some of these political issues in our politics, in our world, is different than what we put on the screen. And we can show more complexity on the screen. We can show good and bad. And that's a way of honoring these performers, which they historically have not been allowed. So, you know, and, and, and so, you know, I think it's important that we just, you know, we, we, we make everybody as, you know, every tool we have available as writers give every character, no matter where they come from. All right, Sonia, you have time for one more, Sonia, from the audience? Okay. Um, okay, here's a question about writing complex plots like The Big Short okay. and Bombshell. What is your process when you run into a roadblock or something gets in the way of your writing? Do you have any techniques? <laughs> uh, er, er, there, there's a great writer named Eric Roth, uh, who many of you will have studied and uh, who's, who, I, who's, who's, who I love, who always talks about when you're stuck with a scene, change the weather. And what he means is if you just change how you see it, if you're like, okay, it's raining outside now, as opposed to sunny, like it'll just, it'll, it'll sort of mess with the, the emotionality of what you're doing. And sometimes that helps. Um, so that's point one. Point two is, you know, um, uh, take it out. You know, I, my, my first question always is if I'm having such a hard time, that there's a reason for that. That means there's something here that's just not, do I really need this scene? Let me envision a world where it's gone, right? Um, and what's lovely about being more experienced as a writer is that doing those kinds of edits become joyful. When you're, when you're first starting out, you're like so afraid of losing great stuff. You're like, oh, I can't take that out. But, but today oh, I'm like, oh, I love this. You know, rewriting becomes so much fun as you progress because you can kind of feel when it's working when it's not. And the, and the third thing I would say if you're stuck is just put it away and do something else. You know, just, just go, go away for two days and, and come back to it. That, the, 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 the history of writing, particularly of the novel, is full of people who know that, you know, you're in a, you're in a hole, just, it'll be different two days from now. I promise you, it'll, it'll just seem like a different thing, you know? And, and remember also, you know, part of it is, is, is your own management of your own 
enthusiasm for, for writing, right? So what I like to do is like when I finish at the end of my day is leave a little thing for me to start working on tomorrow that I'm excited about. That way it kind of gets me into it. Because if I'm, if I'm just picking up, oh, I got to start again. I don't know what I'm going to do. If you start with a problem that's already frustrating you, then it's going to be, you're going you're gonna to find yourself, you know, surfing online and doing your email and doing all the procrastinate procrastination that writers do just because you don't want to face like having to deal with that but if it's like oh i gotta I get to write that little that little bit today a good line you know and then you start and you're kind of into it awesome well we always end our shows with the same question for our guests okay. so we're going to ask you to play professor for a moment and recommend a screenplay for any aspiring screenwriters to read to learn about the oh wow what's a great screenplay um you know, um, I'm trying trying to think of a, of a, you know, I think, I think Marriage Story this last season is a great screenplay to get your hands on because it's structurally very disciplined about staying with their emotional perspectives and making everything born out of their emotional conflicts, their internal emotional conflicts, even though it's very broad geographically and that sort of thing. So, you know, I think that that screenplay, uh, I think is a pretty illustrative read and it's also kind of tired territory. That's not a new story and his ability to really breathe new life into essentially the story of a divorce is, is, is pretty remarkable. So uh, in the last two or three years, I would say that's the screenplay that I've learned um, the most from sort of in terms of its, of its structure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Charles, for joining us. Gladly. Coming to, of course, we'd rather have you in person, which we will with your next film. Okay, good. <laughs> we want you to, you know, you mentioned coming to Santa Barbara, so. Uh, Santa Barbara, I'm, I'm there for Santa Barbara anytime, <laughs> anytime. Santa Barbara's good. Thanks, thanks so much for joining us today. All right, you guys are lucky. All right, good to see you. Thank <laughs> you. Bye. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.